Welcome to Rising Stars, where Miriam Knight, publisher of New Consciousness Review, interviews exciting new voices in the world of progressive and transformational books, films, and ideas who offer intriguing perspectives on life, the universe, and everything in between. Join us as we celebrate the conscious awakening and explore many expressions of consciousness in action. I am Miriam Knight, and my guest today is Daniel Pinchbeck. Daniel is the founder of the Think Tank, Center for Planetary Culture, which produced the Regenerative Society Wiki, and his essays and articles have been featured in the New York Times Magazine, Esquire, Rolling Stone, Art Forum, the New York Times Book Review, The Village Voice, and Dazed and Confused. Don't we all feel like that sometimes? <laughs> he is the star of the 2010 documentary, 2012, A Time for Change, and his books include Breaking Open the Head and 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. This was a New York Times bestseller, and it earned him a spot on the Colbert Report. Now, his new book about social and ecological crises threatening the future of life on Earth, no less, is called How Soon Is Now, and I am most pleased to have him with us today. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Miriam. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, now, you acknowledge that your progressive awakening to our profound interdependency with the planet was seriously helped by various psychedelic substances that you ingested over the years. Do you anticipate or hope that rational arguments can make a dent in the bubble of denial we're all living in to some degree, or do we all need to get high to take the high road? <laughs> Um, well, what I discuss in my works, going back to the first book, Breaking Open the Head, and the second book, and now the new book, is that um, we have a problem in that, you know, it's easy for as human beings for us to get locked into kind of um, social structures, ideologies, beliefs, kind of like we get locked into our ego, egoic perspective, and uh, we lose kind of our connection to maybe more like the, the, the base level reality. And I, mean, I think I think you know visionary plant sacraments like ayahuasca and peyote can be helpful uh, in kind of kind of in a sense like stripping back you know your 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 um, preconceptions around reality and giving you like a new a new view even really changing how you see the world and, and how you think about uh, reality. So in that way, especially in a time like now where we're seeing, you know, kind of uh, very divisive ideologies and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, people who have started to believe in all sorts of crazy things. I think that psychedelics, you know, you use judiciously uh, can, can be of benefit. Now, I don't necessarily think they're for everyone. It's obviously a personal decision. Uh, there's obviously, you know, legal issues and so on, you know, but there is a lot of scientific research now being done uh, that kind of merges the, the, the rational and the intuitive uh, in relationship to these substances. So, for instance, they gave a psilocybin, which is the, you know, kind of chemical part of mushrooms, to... Um, a lot of volunteers who had never had a psychedelic experience, sane, rational people with careers and so on, and a vast preponderance of them said it was one of the most significant, most you know, best experiences of their lives, uh, and um, 
given psychological tests even years after the experience, they had measurable uh, changes in how they viewed the world that were actually quite positive. So, for instance, they, they had a much higher score in terms of openness to new experience and so on. So, yeah, I mean, I do think, I don't think psychedelics are the answer in a, in a sense, but I think they're a tool that um, can be helpful um, for people to kind of scrape away the, the, the sort of crust that forms on their, on their perspective. Well, certainly on this show, I hear from many, many people who have had uh, either spontaneous awakenings or traumatic injuries that led to near-death experiences, and one reason or another had profound um, psychic openings, psychic awakenings. And it sounds like the various substances, the entheogens, um, really are kind of an intentional shortcut to that state, but the bottom line is that we are. What did you call your 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 book? Breaking open the head. We are opening our heads and minds, and hopefully our hearts to what we are doing to our lives and to our environment. And um, your book really is, how can I call it, uh, really almost a, a compendium of the ideas that we have to wake up to, um, particularly our immediate crisis, our exist, existential crisis. And whatever it takes to do it, um, you know, by God, we better do it. now. What uh, what was your intention in writing this book? Well, I guess like for me, writing a book comes out of almost like a, a um, how can I say a sense of kind of you know urgency and, and a certain maybe even level of anxiety where like there's some investigation that I, I find really significant, and then I'm you know I've been a big reader, so I start to look through the culture and try to find kind of. Um, books that represent that, 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 that idea. And when I can't find the, the, the sort of text that kind of integrates the material in the way that I think is necessary, I feel that it's then kind of my responsibility to, to do it, you know? So each book has kind of answered a set of questions that, that, that were raised for me. And this new book, uh, you know, I'd written this book 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl that you mentioned, which really looked at these indigenous ways of thinking about the future and our time, the nature of reality. And I was like, okay, well, if we are in this time of great transformation, what's on the other side of that? Like, how would we have to kind of redirect or reinvent our, our society, our social systems, and our technological systems to be in harmony with, with the earth, you know, which obviously would be a better situation. And so that led me to thinkers like Buckminster Fuller and, and all sorts of just all sorts of uh, approaches to try to think about it like systemically and holistically, you know, because I think it's pretty obvious that we have a, a sickness uh, right now uh, affecting us at, at a very deep level. And um, it's not going to be something that we can just kind of reform our way out of it. And in a way, it feels like our political and economic systems have, have developed a kind of like rigor mortis. They're becoming more and more rigidified and calcified. And so we, we need a new way of understanding our world and, and, and what's, what our possibilities are. So that's, that's where I felt this book was really necessary. Mm. 
Russell Brand called it a blueprint for the future. What do you think he meant by that? Well, I mean, the, the book does two things. I mean, on the one hand, it, it looks at our systems, you know, our situation, as I said, sort of systemically, almost from a biological point of view, from the, from the vantage point of like evolutionary biology, kind of saying that, uh, like, you know, we think that we're separate from nature, but maybe actually we're still very much part of nature, and, and we're almost on the, you know, we're, we're not really understanding that our species as a whole is a kind of superorganism that, that is in a symbiotic relationship with the ecology of the Earth as a whole system. Uh, and, you know, we're making these massive geophysical, geological effects on, on the Earth's uh, surface and atmosphere and so on, but we're not really kind of cognizant of what that what that means or, or how we're doing it or whatever. So on the one hand, we have to understand the system, and then we have to think about the solutions. And so, yeah, I mean, the blueprint for the future is the solution set that, that I, I propose. And admittedly, it's very, very uh, radical. And, and for a lot of people, their first response may be like, you know, shock or, or you know, maybe they'll want to disagree. For, for instance, I think that, you know, there's profound problems with our money system. And we actually have to think about different ways that we could exchange value that aren't going to keep forcing unsustainable growth and development and, you know, drain the, the Earth's remaining, uh, you know, depleted resources and so on. You know, our, our governments were basically, the templates for them were formed in the 18th century when we didn't have the Internet, when things moved a lot slower. And, and now they're kind of, these systems that we're living in that were created a while back are kind of obstructing the, the potential we have for progress. Well, I was really impressed by the sense of urgency that you managed to convey in the book, which I think most politicians and the vast majority of us are not really plugged into how dire uh, our situation is. I mean, you talk about the absolutely horrifying consequences to the planet of a rise of even two degrees of annual average temperature. And it doesn't matter whether it is being caused by us or simply a natural phenomenon. We, it's still something we have to deal with. And uh, again, there is I just so want to jump. I, 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 I just want to jump in and say that I feel there, there, this doubt about whether humans are causing climate change is, is, a, is a real problem. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. you have a vast preponderance of the world's scientists who agree. And, um, you know, they really know that, like, for instance, we now have 400 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. And the last time we had this level, the, the you know, sea levels were 100 feet more higher and temperatures were 4 degrees Celsius warmer. So, you know, and, and we know that we're putting like a, something like a million tons of CO2 into the atmosphere every hour. Uh, I mean, we know that, for instance, it's causing ocean acidification because the oceans are absorbing a huge amount of this excess industrial CO2. And that's leading to things like the breakdown of the coral reefs and, and, and so on. So, so it, it, you know, the, 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 it's, un, it's unfortunate that, you know, on the one hand, there's kind of right-wing propaganda and disinformation, but also there's kind of like on the New Age spiritual kind of occult side of things, there's also this weird disbelief that we're actually doing this, but, but you know, the, the scientific evidence is, is really strong. Now, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't think it helps to be in a state of panic or anxiety or crisis. I mean, I think we have to recognize that we actually still don't know very much. I mean, our, our knowledge is quite new, and... Um, 
you know, if we look at the world, it's an incredibly miraculous situation that we're here at all. I mean, we're 10 trillion, you know, oops, I hear music starting. Am I going too too long? <laughs> no, just finish the thought. Um, that, um, um, yeah, that, you know, that we don't know what we're possible of. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're these right. vast colonies of microorganisms on this tiny rock spinning around a fireball, you know, and so, <laughs> well, so, so, you know, we, we may really only be we'll at the get, beginning of understanding what our possibilities are. Right. So we were talking about climate change and what can we do about it, Daniel? Um, well, there's a lot we actually could be doing about it. I mean, um, you know, we have to think about it on the, obviously there's an individual level, but then really to bring about the types of massive scale of change that we need, it, it's going to require something like a collective mobilization. Uh, you know, so, some people, I think quite rightly, are, are pointing towards actually that we do have this tremendous capacity to mobilize uh, when, when the need is urgent enough. Um, and a great example of that, of course, was the U.S. in World War II, where after Pearl Harbor, I think it was in about three months, we retooled all of our factories for wartime production, and we put a massive tax. I think the wealthiest people were taxed at 94% or something, with all of the capital and resources kind of pouring into this war effort. And then, you know, a strange thing about times like that, of times of crisis and mobilization, is that people actually don't, don't mind them. In fact, often they remember them afterwards as, like, really amazing and positive times, you know, where, where people really came together and, and had a, a unity uh, of intention, you know. So, I mean, it's, you know, of course we, we're in this kind of bizarre circumstance at the moment where we've just elected, you know, a climate denier as president, uh, you know, who's, who's appointing, you know, one of the worst companies in terms of its impact on the climate as, as you know, the CEO of it as Secretary of State. So it feels like we're in a, in, a, in, a, in a moment of rollback. I mean, I guess we are. But hopefully that is just a prelude or, or maybe that's a necessary contraction, you know, before, before we, we really begin to reckon with our, with our actual situation and make the types of changes that, that are necessary. Now, in terms of those changes, what I look at in the book are kind of the, the, the technical aspects of them, you know, are areas such as energy, industry, and agriculture, maybe being the, the biggest three. And we do know that we could, you know, shift to a renewable energy system. Uh, I mean, at the moment, they're talking about 50 years or 100 years. But once again, if we had that kind of wartime mobilization, you know, we could theoretically do it in much less time, in a, in a, in a decade. You know, that would include things like, um, yeah, sol solar energy, you know, storage units, distributed energy grids. You know, really people would be able to make their own power and feed it back to the grid. Uh, agriculture, industrial farming is a main contributor to global warming and CO2. Uh, we could shift to regenerative agriculture, uh, no-till agriculture, organic permaculture practices that actually can produce higher yields than industrial farming, and also they replenish topsoil top, top rather than depleting the topsoil. Uh, you know, one thing that would probably be necessary would be a shift away from meat-eating as a major staple of the diet. Meat-eating would be, have to become something that people only did very occasionally, if at all. And, uh, you know, because something like, you know, it's estimated something like 30% of CO2 emissions are related to factory farms and meat-eating. And it's also the, uh, you know, the soybeans that we're creating for cattle leads to a lot of deforestation around the world, which is another big issue because the, the forests produce 20% or something of the oxygen 
oxygen that we breathe. So we would have to go to a renewable energy system, distributed uh, energy. We'd have to go to regenerative agriculture, um, you know, kind of um, reforest the planet, you know, as much as we could. And then we would also have to rethink our industrial systems so that they use kind of cradle-to-cradle practices. This is an idea from a thinker called William McDonoghue. You know, so, you know, you would be thinking in terms of systems that are reusable, um, you know, can, can be fixed and so on. You know, so at the moment we get these electronic gadgets and then they're outmoded or they break and we throw them out. We really have to, would have to have corporations would have to put the energy into creating, you know, gadgets that are, you know, com- you know are built on components that can be uh, replaced and, and um, you know, recycled and so on. Uh, and then in terms of, yeah, in terms of the political economic system, it would be a model more of a sort of local decentralized communities that are connected bioregionally and then a sort of planetary framework for a type of global direct democracy. And in theory, that could actually be done using the, the Internet, potentially using this new system called blockchain, uh, which, which has been developed over the last decades. What's it called? Uh, the, the blockchain? The blockchain. It's actually the basis for Bitcoin. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a ledger system where, where every um, kind of exchange is accountable. So it's sort of a transparent ledger system. So it doesn't allow for the kind of obstructions and, and hidden kind of uh, transactions that, that now are part of our global financial system. I must say that there were so many references in your book that I underline and dog-eared to go and check on later because it sounds like there's so much being done around the world of a very positive nature that uh, we would love to um, expand that, that kind of thinking. But that leads us to the underlying revolution in thinking that you talk about in your book. It's moving into a different values system. Um, you, you quote Vananda Shiva as saying that some things should not be tradable, like water and biodiversity are too valuable and to turn toxic waste and greenhouse gases into tradable commodities ensures that they will continue to be produced. I, I think that the basic point in your book is that monetary value is the only yardstick we used with our capitalist mindset, and we need to get back to real values. What is the way that we can do that? What what will give us that that shift? You talk about an initiation. We, we still need to get into the mindset that will allow for that. Yeah. Short of, of drugs, um, how do we do that? Well, I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, my book, and there's also many other books, you know, that, uh, similar themes can help people, you know, go through the, the, the sort of, I mean, there is a rational and logical process where you have to, you know, reckon with the fact that, you know, unfortunately, the system that, you know, is now running the world is, um, you know, really having this destructive impact on our, um, on the ecology that, that we rely upon, you know, for our existence. And, um, yeah, and, and, and then um, think about uh, the options, you know. And, and so, for instance, um, in the book I talk about 
you know, different different ways. You know, we, everything. You know, like things like you know, money is something that we've designed so that it operates in a certain way. You know, we've designed it so that it, it, it can be hoarded, so that it accumulates, so somebody can have a vast amount of it while somebody else doesn't have any of it. You know, we we could, for instance, have a different way of exchanging value, where you know, energy moves through the system more like energy does through the human body. Like you don't have your cells hoarding a lot of energy and depriving other cells of energy. You don't have your organs, you know, kind of invading each other to steal their resources or whatever. You know, I, I think we have, once again, if we take this model of looking ourse- at ourselves as a planetary superorganism or as a, you know, as a human family, as one extended family, that, that, then we can begin to, you know, model and design new, new systems that, that really will allow us to, to thrive uh, collectively, you know, far into the future. In a perverse way, it's possible that the new administration in Washington and the people that are being brought in may make the situation so acute that it will capture our attention, kind of like what you called a an initiation experience. Do you think that's possible? Uh, I totally think that's possible. Uh, in fact, um, you know that's that's kind of my uh, yeah that would be like my big hope and it would be totally in alignment with everything that the book uh, talks about. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, the fact is that you know under you know the neoliberal regime of Obama and Clinton, which was more of kind of like a soft power regime, you know, all of this stuff was still happening. I mean, you know, Hillary was a big supporter of fracking. You know, Obama supported these you know Middle Eastern wars and you know kind of. Um, you know, all this negative stuff was going on, uh, but there was a sort of overarching ideology of like you know, uh, you know, identity politics and liberalism and so on. So it kind of hid, you know, the fact that wealth inequality was getting worse and the ecology was was going to hell. So so now we, the situation has reached this extreme where we have to uh, face it. You know. Yeah. No more head in the sand. And if uh, the weather that we're experiencing now isn't an indication that something real is happening, I don't know what is. I mean, the weather is absolutely insane. Yeah, I mean, the weather is berserk. I mean, it's not even cold. You could probably walk around in a T-shirt today in, in late January in New York. Usually, and, you know, it's been raining here. But normally it's freezing with snow everywhere. So, yes, we, we've definitely... You know, impacted the climate, and we have to realize that you know there's there's levels of things that we've you know kind of feedback loops that we've engaged that we're probably not going to be able to interrupt. Like we're probably not going to be able to stop you know sea level rise of something like you know could be ten meters or even a hundred feet, which is going to inundate ultimately a lot of the coastal cities. Uh, and of course, that in a way is a very sad thought. I mean, maybe we'll get lucky and we'll figure out some incredible machine that sucks carbon from the atmosphere. But even then, the, it seems like the ice the icebergs have already started to like, crack apart and the glaciers are melting and everything. It's going to be hard to stop that. But you know, that could also be once again, we're such an ingenious species. We have such capacity to build and to create. You know, in, in that you know, even if we lost a hundred feet. You know, we, that would only be five percent of the Earth's landmass. There would still be plenty of room for people to create new cities, to to live together harmoniously, and so on. Uh, you know, we just have to realize that the, the future is going to be a, a lot for us to 
to deal with and we have to kind of get get prepared you know by i think going through this sort of self-initiation and the spiritual awakening uh, now rather than later mm-hmm. one of the things that we tend to do is to expect that technology will fix it sufficiently that we can just continue with business as usual how do we get the message across or do you think do you think mother nature is going to get her message across that that ain't going to happen yeah well you know we we we've definitely um you know we and also once again we have to see i look at everything as an evolutionary process and you know i don't i don't you think we can if we take that sort of systemic viewpoint we get away from the question of like oh good or bad or guilty or shame or whatever i mean um you know capitalism was an incredibly you know powerful force that has led to tremendous amounts of innovation you know a lot of it is is also quite positive uh and we could never have imagined even 100 years ago the kinds of impacts that we were having you know on the planet you know and so you know our, our, we've had a kind of naive faith in, in technology and progress so like plastics uh, obviously in a way are, are incredible they they've allowed us to create all these things we didn't think 80 years ago they would pollute every ecosystem on the planet and cause massive amounts of cancers and you know birds are you know 3000 you know, 6000 miles away in the ocean or full of plastic and so so you know so so we have to we we have to recognize now in the future that we can design more in in relationship or, or in alignment with nature systems you know and, and but that also requires new technologies and new approaches to technology like we could make mm-hmm. you know biodegradable compostable plastics that feed back uh, right. positively into the ecosystems and so on right daniel you quoted one of my heroes having been an alumna of the university of virginia you write that thomas jefferson said it was a mistake to end the revolution that ongoing insurrection would have been preferable this was in the context of the uh, different protest movements around the world and throughout history what were you trying to point out by quoting jefferson what was i trying to point out well um, yeah expand well, on that well basically the 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 founding fathers um you know the were you know some of them anyway the, the the ones that I kind of identify with I guess were very aware that you know liberty was not something that could just be you know put into a piece of paper and then and then preserved forever you know it was something that people had to dedicate you know ongoing ongoingly dedicate their their lives to and um it, it, you know so he became concerned when he realized that um kind of like the, the townships which had been kind of like the core kind of a nuclei for for the American revolution and and it created this huge kind of upsurge of participation and desire for freedom and so on they they got kind of pulled into this this kind of federal system and kind of lost their 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 self-determination power so he realized at the end of his life that actually they might have made a mistake with the way they you know kind of set up the US government and it it should have been more a situation where the system would would encourage you know kind of uh independence you know interdependence also but you know people we would would have an ongoing relationship to their society i mean i'm not even sure the constitution was meant to be a permanent document or whether it was meant to be something that was regularly updated and and in fact you know once again if we look at the internet age you know we probably need to create 
things that are more like living documents that you know can be kind of open source. And I think like Iceland actually recently re- rewrote their constitution, and they did it through an open source process where all the citizens were engaged in, in, in that. What I particularly like about the Iceland story that you tell in the book is that they threw out their bankers and um, revised their monetary system. Uh, go Iceland. Yeah, now, well, I mean, um, if we look at, you know, what happened in you know, 2008, uh, I mean, there's definitely some severe issues with our current financial system. Uh, I mean, there, it's you know the Federal Reserve is actually a private institution and uh, you know controlled by kind of the financial elites who can sort of game it you know in their own in their own terms. So that even a you know kind of destructive episode like you know the mortgage crisis and meltdown impacted millions and millions of ordinary people. But but a lot of the bankers, I mean, nobody got arrested. You know, a lot of them still got their bonuses, and the, the banks were, you know, given huge loans and so on. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, once again, it, se- it seems like the system needs to be, uh, you know, redesigned. And, 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 and uh, well, you know, I, yeah, so. Getting back to Mr. Jefferson, I think the the point that I took from it was pulling the power back into the local communities of participatory um, democracy as opposed to uh, voting uh, every four years or, or every two years for your representatives and then just complaining about what they do in the meantime. Getting your hands dirty, it's, it's really involving, in, in an ironic sense, it's very much what the Republican Party claims to be about, is a smaller footprint for government, taking power back to the individual. The Occupy movement that you describe, that you actually were, were quite involved in during the, uh, the height of it in uh, Zuccotti Park, had a really good take on it. What are the best elements of, of self-governance that you would like to see grow and take over? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. Yeah, but I, I think Occupy was fascinating. Um, and I, I wasn't, in fact, I wish I'd been maybe more involved in retrospect. But, um, you know, part, part of, people made a mistake. They're like, oh, it's just a protest movement. But actually it was very much a process movement. And the process was kind of how do we actually restore kind of living direct democracy. You know, so people who were just, you know, part of that movement were coming together every day to kind of rethink the basis of, you know, government and, and uh, how people relate to each other, how systems relate to each other, and so on. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we have, you know, unfortunately, you know, from an early age, people are very much indoctrinated uh, with this idea that things have to be a certain way. And one idea is that there should be centralized control and a kind of authoritarian, strong leadership. Uh, you know, I think some of that is why people responded to, to Trump, you know, despite his, you know, the lies and everything, that, that he seemed like this strong male figure, like a patriarch or something. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I got intrigued by, for instance, tribal societies, which, you know, 
people have a lot of misconceptions about. Uh, but they were definitely models for resilience, you know, that, that were the outgrowth of thousands of years of trial and error. And they actually are very non-hierarchical for the most part. Like tribes, uh, you know, even if a tribe has a chief or a leader, the chief was never able to just order people to go into war or whatever. The chief was more like the, the mediator, the, the listener, the holder of the wisdom, and the person that you would consult, you know, in, in, for all sorts of things. And in fact, if the chief's power, you know, began to become a little power mad or e- egotistical, it was often the, the elder women in the, in the tribe, like a council of grandmothers, who would be able to cut off their authority. And um, yeah, so, so it was a very different situation, it seems, than what, than what we normally think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but I think what we need is, is communities to come back together and, you know, work things out um, together. I mean, we've seen examples of that, like when Argentina, they had a massive crisis, the financial crisis, and their, their money just melted down to nothing. And people actually came together. The workers took over the factories without leaders. People were meeting in, in local kind of con- congresses. Uh, and, you know, that's one thing I, I talk in the book about Hannah Arendt, the political philosopher. And she actually notes that this is a, that, that we have a natural political instinct uh, that probably comes from our tribal inheritance. But our, our, the society that we're in now actually alienates us from that and kind of forfeits it because we just assume that we're going to be like taken care of by the, the by the state. Uh, yeah, so maybe that's an interesting way that the kind of radical ideology that I'm pointing out in the book kind of could be synthesized creatively with kind of some aspects of conservatism or, or right-wing thought. Mm. Yeah, that's what uh, occurred to me. And do you think that the uh, communities like the one that you talked about in Portugal that are based on uh, uh, free love, do, do they have an aspect of the puzzle that would benefit the wider community? Well, I, I believe so. And, I, you know, obviously um, this is a very deep issue. Uh, and, you know, I think that we really can see in our public sphere and our, our political sphere and the celebrity sphere how sexuality is this massive kind of uh, issue that, that, we, that we take note of in terms of these particular, this endless litany of scandals and so on. But once again, it's not something that we think about comprehensively and systemically. Um, you know, so, you know, Hillary Clinton's husband, Bill Clinton, you know, his sex scandals and Trump's sex scandals and Elliot Spitzer and Roger Ailes and, you know, now Pizzagate, you know, which I think is probably made up. But, but there's, there's this seething undercurrent of, of sexuality, which is, um, you know, something that we sort of are going to have to address if we ever want to have a truly harmonious and peaceful human society. And uh, some of that kind of you know, the, 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 the sort of uh, intensity around that whole thing has to do with our current construct of monogamy and the nuclear family, which have been very much seen as like the natural form that, that you know, kind of uh, uh, human beings take. 
And actually, a lot of research suggests that it's a very recent phenomenon and that we weren't really, you know, a monogamous species at all. Uh, and, and, that, and that monogamy is actually more of an imposition that came over the last thousands of years as, as agriculture developed and there were surpluses and you had to like figure out how to maintain a surplus in a family line, you know, through patri- patriarchal lineage or whatever. And, um, yeah, and I think we see, like, it's a huge thing that's happening with, like, Tinder and dating sites and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, Internet porn and so on. There, there You know, there, there's this huge, you know, people have a yearning for erotic experience. And in a way, it would be better if society was designed so that people could have those experiences in, in a safe and secure, non-destructive way. So that's what Tamara, this, this community in Portugal, seeks to model. And they, they, they were German radical leftists who began to realize that um, these issues around love and sexuality and jealousy and possessiveness were very profoundly political issues that were making it impossible for this kind of more utopian alternative to emerge, and they kind of had to be addressed first. So they sort of separated themselves from society and developed a new model where people have kind of non-possessive relationships that are transparent uh, with a lot of social gatherings and social tools to help people mediate conflicts and, and come up and with a tremendous degree of transparency. Like everybody kind of knows what's happening with everybody else. And even people will have like these kind of forums where they go and express all of the intricacies of their relationships with each other. So it's, for me, it was the first systemic uh, model of an alternative that actually seems to work and to make people very happy. Mm. It was absolutely fascinating. It was called Tintera again? Uh, T-A-M-E-R-A, Tamara, Tamara.org. And the the kind of philosopher who's behind it is this guy, Dieter Doom, who's written a number of books that are very much worth uh, checking out. Mm -hmm. Daniel, I think this gets us back to the underlying question of values. What do we value in life and what are we willing to give up to achieve those values or to achieve real uh, happiness and satisfaction? You were talking about this community in Portugal, Tamara. We were talking about the monetary system and its propensity to value everything or to cause us to value everything in terms of money. Um, There are many other examples that you give in the book about alternative human organizations, communities. Do you think that we're going to be forced in this direction? Uh, Do you think we can go to it through choice? I I think many people are already doing it. What do you think are the best models or or the intermediate models that will draw us in the right direction? Um, Intermediate models? Um, Let's see. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the big question, right? Like if, you know, I, I guess what I was, you know, the way, the way I was thinking about it in, for the, for the book was like, um, you know, we, we need to know where we're going and we, we need to have a shared <coughs> focus, direction, attention, mission, you know, and, and, and in a way, um, um, 
that that might be quite profoundly different. I mean, you know, as an example, think about somebody like Steve Jobs, who maybe had this idea for the iPhone, and he was like, okay, like, I want this to make this amazing thing. I see that it's possible, but it's going to require like, you know, software and minerals and factories and hardware, and it may take ten years to to put the whole thing together. Then we'll have this amazing new thing. We we think about that in terms of, you know, commercial products or, or gadgets. We don't think about that in terms of how we want our society to be. So for the book, I was like, okay, like I think we would prefer to have a you know democratically localized, participatory, decentralized uh, you know, system where everybody was you know had a basic income, so nobody was tremendously anxious, uh, and uh, where our, you know our, our yeah the whole all the all the things we've been discussing. So then the question is, yeah, what are the steps to get there? And um, it's, it's, it's complicated. I mean, I, I think that um, one piece of the puzzle could be uh, social technologies, uh, media. I mean, we see things like, I mean, you know, we, we see how these social tools can, can really rapidly shift many things about how people live and how they relate with each other. You know, whether it's a new app like, you know, a dating app or something like Uber or Airbnb. Facebook, you know, so I guess the question would be, could there be a set of social tools that are designed to help people trust each other again, share resources, make decisions together? And actually, there have been some examples of all of these types of tools, and, and maybe it'll be, you know, as we go into kind of this financial and ecological crisis, as it, as it deepens, those tools will become, you know, accessible to everybody and, and scale very rapidly. What is your sense of urgency for change? What kind of tipping point do you think is upon us? Do you have a time frame? Uh, I don't really have a time frame. I mean, you know, well, I mean, you know, I think that the way of life that we have now, in in terms of the the resource, you know, basis of, of, of it, definitely has an expiration date of about, you know, 50 to 20 years. Uh, you know, I mean, even the UN has said that, you know, we have about, about you know, at, at the current way we're doing agriculture, 60 uh, years of harvest left before the global top, top, topsoil is so depleted that, that we can't do it anymore. And we know that we're losing about 10% of the Earth's remaining biodiversity every 10 to 15 years. We're losing somewhere around like 150 or 200 species a day. So, yeah, we're definitely in the end game already. Uh, how it shakes out or when exactly, I don't really feel that that makes sense for me to prognosticate, you know, but but uh, I think everyone's aware that, that we're in this transformational period and it's going to keep getting more intense. Uh, and either it's going to, you know, go more in the direction of uh, authoritarianism and border control and, you know, all this kind of negative approach or it'll be something quite different where we'll really have to, you know, uh, kind of take a take a, a radical alternative approach to, to, to bring about uh, the types of changes that, you know, I'm looking at and people like Buckminster Fuller and Oscar Wilde kind of uh, envision. Yeah, they, you quoted uh, both of them with some very memorable quotes, which I can't remember, but I will have to go back and find them. Um, so you describe uh, options like 
build, rebuilding our cities or retrofitting our cities with urban gardens and learning to live with less and some startling statistics on how much greenhouse gases one air uh, flight produces uh, so that we should um, really seriously consider cutting down on air travel. I, I think one of the things that we want is to feel that we're all in this together and when we see a section of our society continuing with business as usual, we feel, oh well, if I don't, then I'm just a chump. So enforcing this, we're all in this together mentality is, I think, one of the, the core elements of solving the, the crisis um, or giving us a positive future. What do you think is the role of artists in this? Um, let's see. Um, Including well, writers I think like art, yourself. Yeah, well, but I think um, artists, you know, could have the uh, the role of really kind of like developing the, the new mythology. Uh, the kind of because uh, once again, we're, as humans, we're very mythological uh, creatures. Like we we create myths and cultural narratives, and we believe in those myths and cultural narratives, and then they kind of direct what we do with our time and our energy, you know. So, like, patriotism, for instance, is, 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 a, is a mythological idea, right? It doesn't exist in nature, that, that one should be connected to one's country and feel that as, like, an extension of one's body or something. Um, so, yeah, now, now we need, like, a new set of uh, mythologies to kind of replace the ones that aren't serving us anymore. And, yeah, in the book I try to propose some of those, like, you know, really thinking about ourselves as kind of like cells in this planetary superorganism, or uh, thinking about the idea that, you know, we, maybe we do have profound psychic abilities, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that, that I, I think that we do have, uh, and that maybe, you know, one reason we've subconsciously self-created or self-willed this crisis is to, is to, is to force us to access our, our own latent uh, greatness, our latent capacities. Mm. Well, you certainly took on a big task in trying to wrap all of these thoughts and solutions into one book. So I applaud you for that. It's called How Soon Is Now. Uh, tell me, do you have a, uh, a website that you want to direct people to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a howsoonisnow.info. Uh, it's the website. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can sign up for a mailing list and I'll put up ideas and sections of the book and so on. There's also, uh, I can be followed on Facebook and Twitter, all that fun stuff. You recently launched a new social network called Woke. What is Well, we haven't really launched it yet. It's sort of in, in development. Uh, but once again, I, mean, I feel like, you know, media is a very important uh, piece of the puzzle. And we really see with this last election uh, that, uh, you know, the, the impact of this extreme right-wing media uh, has, has, you know, really pulled people into a kind of vortex of, uh, you know, kind of the, the filter bubble effect and so on. So, and I, and I think that, you know, the, there, there needs to be an alternative 
media hub or network that is as focused on the you know what we could do on the positive solutions on these alternatives uh, the kind of uh, great vision for our future that is actually one of our whole human family coming together and, and, and uh, you know taking care of t- taking care of each other taking care of the planet uh, and but then also not just being you know kind of uh, you know woolly minded about it but actually being very brass tacks about what that looks like how do we model our behavior you know what do we have to give up what do we gain you know so so that 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 that's kind of uh, the the idea so it sounds like it is um, encompassing much of the end part of your book with practical solutions and and links to other people who are doing positive things Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, we will see. That's uh, that, that that that's basically the the idea. And hopefully, it'll you know not just be me, but a whole chorus of, of voices and, 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 and contributors. When do you expect it to come online? Oh, I, I don't know yet. It's still in, in development. But I started a company years ago called a, a media company called Evolver, which is actually still going strong. There's a web magazine, Reality Sandwich, and uh, they do uh, video teleseminars called the Evolver Learning Labs. And they have a space in New York that sells like uh, herbal uh, products and, and books, and there's a lot of events. So I, I feel that I now have some good experience in, in building this type of organization. Well, you must let us know when it is about to launch, and we will get absolutely. Well, if you, if you, hopefully, you're on my email newsletter list because I will keep pigging the world with with everything I, I can think of that 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 you know that I'm involved <laughs> with. Okay, so how do you get on your email list? Well, as I said, uh, easiest would be to go to howsoonisnow.info. Uh, but I also have uh, my own like website for well, a lot of my past works and interviews and videos, which is pitchback.io. So those are the two good ways. Very good. So do you have a final word for um, humanity uh, listening? A final thought? Yeah, well, I think us? that uh, essentially, like, um, you know, we have to overcome fear uh, to, to, to face what's happening. And, and, and once we do that, if we could go into more of a... Uh, mindset of kind of this is a great opportunity and a great initiation that's going to lead to my own personal evolution that that that, mm-hmm. that we have a much better chance of uh, of dealing with what with what's happening let us hope well thank you daniel pinchback author of how soon is now i'm miriam knight for new consciousness review thank you so much for listening and do join us next week many blessings goodbye <laughs>